Welcome to another episode of Conduct Judgmental. I'm Dan Lust, joined as always by Dan Wallach. Two topics this week and a special guest. Pat Leonard is our return guest. He was on uh, our show talking New York Giants football. We have some big Giants news in addition to kind of like the uh, the red wedding of NFL coaches. So we thought we'd bring Pat on to kind of get into the weeds of what someone who is a lawyer, John Mara, goes through in the thought process of replacing uh, their head coach. But then I think the other story, which we'll get to after Pat, is an international sports story, the Novak Djokovic controversy. So, Dan, before we get to Pat, what are your thoughts on this Giants situation? Well, you know, I've been a critic of the Mara, you know, ownership for so many years, but this ultimately comes down to having this opportunity to reboot the franchise in 2018, not going outside the organization, hiring an insider in Dave Gettleman, who made a series of, of drafting decisions, I think, which set the franchise back almost a decade. And we're going to get into that with Pat, which led to a succession of coaching failures. Uh, so everything that we're talking about today really stems back or ties back to how the franchise mismanaged sort of the end of the Jerry Reese regime, the ushering out of Eli Manning, and the missing out on a golden opportunity to really put this franchise in a direction that could contend for Super Bowls for years to come. And it ended up being a colossal failure. So we're going to kind of zero in on that date and sort of the thought process behind how the Giants make decisions, which are not unique to the New York Giants. I mean, there are a number of coaching failures and a number of people on the unemployment line this week. You know, the Bears, the Giants. I mean, this is an annual rite of passage in the NFL, and we're going to have one of the best people in the industry, you know, kind of breaking down how the Giants went through their process and the repeating of their failures from prior years. You know, we've been down this road before, Dan. Yeah, you know, on our show, we've obviously talked about Urban Meyer. Was it, was it for cause or not for cause? We talked about the, um, the Washington State coach, I believe his name was Nick Rolovich, who refused to get the, the vaccine. He was fired. So was it for cause or not for cause? But we'll get into it with Pat. I think everyone's in agreement that this was coming, and it's just a matter of kind of rebuild. So we spoke to Pat. We have a good contact. Dan, you met him, obviously, at, at Radio Rope way back when. And uh, anytime we have a giant story, we bring on our, our friend Pat. So without further ado, I think we're ready to kick it to Pat Leonard of the New York Daily News. Our next guest is a return visitor, Pat Leonard from the New York Daily News, one of our all-time favorite guests on Conduct Detrimental, who covers the National Football League for the Daily News, who's been all over the ongoing New York Giants saga and has written some very critical pieces about the Giants organization, calling them rudderless. And Pat, I agree with you. So welcome to Conduct Detrimental. We're, we're going to get right into it. Thank you. Yeah, you guys are two of the hardest workers out there. I, I respect all the work you guys do, the content you put out, and it's an honor to be on. Thank you, Pat. Definitely feel likewise about you. So let's get started with Joe Judge. What seemed obvious to you, to me, to every NFL analyst took John Mara two full days to decide the issue. What was the turning point? Why did John Mara need two full days to make what seemed to be an obvious call here? Well, my best read is that Steve Tisch wanted to blow it all up the same way he did two years ago where they ended up keeping Dave Gettleman and only firing Pat Shermer is kind of a compromise between Tish and Mara. And in this case as well with Joe judge, my understanding is that John Mara was wrestling with this idea of, is it really fair to fire Joe judge after two years, the same way I did with Ben McAdoo, the same way I did with Pat Shermer and that they genuinely wanted to give judge and their GM candidates the option to inherit him and carry him forward into year three and see if they could create or at least explore an aligned vision with Joe Judge and a new GM. I believe that's why Monty Ossenfort from the Tennessee Titans, a guy who went back a ways to the New England Patriots with Joe Judge, was even in their list of candidates to begin with. So you could see the wheels turning there. The problem was GM candidates were hearing John Mara say, well, you'll have full autonomy of the football operation including with the coaching staff, but they were also looking and saying, well, wait a minute, are you going to suggest that I inherit Joe Judge as well? So GM candidates were on the fence, frankly, about how to handle this and what to do and whether to interview, depending on what the Giants were going to do. And so John Merrill waffled, he wrestled with it, but in the end, he made the decision that Steve Tisch wanted and that they failed to make two years ago that really put them in the spot. Yeah, this is almost like Steve Tisch playing the role of Tim Mara circa 1979, which ultimately led to the Giants 
going outside the organization and hiring George Young as part of a brokered solution with Wellington Mara. And that was the last time, 42 years ago, the very last time, nearly a half a century, that the Giants have gone outside the organization to hire a GM. Mm -hmm. I mean, so is that really sort of the recipe for disaster and that the Giants have a sort of a narrow vision that there needs to be six degrees of separation from the franchise to simply hold the title of general manager? Well, you hit the nail on the head that, believe it or not, as bad as it was in the dark days, as they call those, it's worse now. And, you know, John Mary, even a couple of years ago when I talked to him, acknowledged that that was the only other time that he can remember the Giants being in this type of state. He reveres his father and what his father stood for, Wellington, and, and how he operated and how he was able to help turn the Giants around. And there's nothing John Mara wants more to do than to follow in his father's footsteps in that regard. The story goes, actually, that Wellington recommended George Young to Pete Rozelle and asked Rozelle, the commissioner at that time, to pretend like he was presenting him on his own because Tim Mara wouldn't accept that solution otherwise, because neither man would accept each other's candidate. You're absolutely right that it's as bad as it was then. It's actually worse. And I think the Giants, the only glimmer of hope right now for them is that they seem to recognize that their way of things is broken and that they need to go find somebody else's, which is why the nine GM candidates are all outside candidates. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, John Mara is following his father's footsteps a little bit too closely here because I'm old enough to have lived through the 1970s disasters when the Giants made a series of nepotistic hires. You know, John Wellington Mara had Alex Webster, former player as head coach, Andy Robostelli, general manager for several years. He was a former, you know, Giants legend, and that led to Bill Arnsparger, John McVeigh. It just seems to me that this dark period of, you know, 2016 to the present mirrors the Giants hiring practices late 60s to late 1970s. It, it's like the song remains the same. It's almost like a, a genetic defect. That's perfectly said in the the mirror image of that time and this time. And I mean, let's just be honest. Wellington's legacy doesn't just include the positive. It includes what you just said. And that has been the Giants problem in their darkest times, that nepotism, the unwillingness to evolve, the prioritization of loyalty over efficiency and evolution. And so, yeah, we're right back where they were back in that time as John Mara and the Giants operate the same way. And I think what you're hitting on is it's keeping their thumbs on the scale, so to speak. It's saying that they're going to make change and that they know it's bad, but then not fully stepping away. And I think that's what John Mara really needs to come to grips with here. And Steve Tisch too is, yeah, you know, you need to make change, but does change include how much you do, how involved you are? Do you need to step back completely away from the football operation. Because as you know, John Mara is not just the co-owner. He's the team president. So he's not just a co-owner, like one of these franchises with a lot of money who, when he gets angry, calls someone into his office and he points his finger at them and pounds his desk. And then you don't hear from him in about a month. This is somebody who is involved in the football operation of the Giants. And so that's why... As much as Joe Judge's program was far from perfect and, you know, this isn't about a coach right now. And, you know, I think I'm glad you're, you're actually hitting on, I believe, the real story. The story is the organization, the franchise, the malpractice, the dysfunction. The story is not Joe Judge did this or that. So what's funny, Pat, you, you mentioned that, that uh, John Mara wears a couple hats. Probably important for this podcast, John Mara is also a lawyer, went to my law school, Fordham Law School. Pat, I think, as you know, I worked for the Giants once upon a time from 2008 to 2012. We'll say the, we'll say the recent glory days. Those were some, some good years under Coughlin. You mentioned the term malpractice, and I guess that there is kind of a legal undertone to this story, right? We had a story that we covered very closely, which I'm sure Giants fans and all football fans are familiar with, the termination of Urban Meyer, right? They fire him in the middle of the season. We are coming off what we call uh, Black Monday or Black Thursday, uh, you know, whatever whatever day your, your, your coach gets fired. But obviously coaches around football are being fired. Some surprising ones, you know, probably headlined by Flores over in Miami. And I think people kind of expected the judge firing or, you know, being on the hot seat. So in the last six years, and I know we've, we've kind of talked around it, but, you know, this term malpractice, right? The Giants have done this three times in a row. So we talk about an organizational shift. 
I don't know, you've kind of had one, right? McAdoo is in for two years, he's out, right? Shermer's in for two years, then he's out. And then now the same thing with Judge. You bring someone in for two years and they're out. I guess the question is this. Is there, and I want to play devil's advocate here, because I'm certainly not going to be on the bandwagon to say we should have kept Judge. Judge is the greatest. Let, let's let him turn around. But is there a thought process in the organization from, you know, from Mara's standpoint or maybe, you know, from an administrative standpoint? Maybe we should let this thing play out, right? Coughlin wasn't automatically successful. Coughlin had some bad years before he won the Super Bowl, right? He was around for a ton. So maybe there's some value, again, playing devil's advocate here, you know, some value just letting, letting a culture build before you just kind of pull the ripcord. No, I think it's a great point. And I think part of the problem the coaches have had with Mara over these years and that these staffs have had is it's the moving goalposts. It's John Mara being involved in Eli Manning's benching and then firing Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese and making it look like it was their idea. It's telling Pat Shermer and Dave Gettleman, we're going to see this through and then blasting Shermer out the door, but keeping Dave Gettleman and making excuses for why he deserves more time. It's telling Joe Judge, this is a long-term rebuild. We finally understand this can't be a quick fix. We're going to let you see this through. And then in year two, let's load up, spend all of our money. We have to win the NFC East. And if we don't, and it looks really bad at the end, we're going to fire you. And so John Mara and Steve Tisch, they're not only not seeing it through, they're saying they're going to see it through and then moving the goalposts and changing what it looks like at the end when push comes to shove. And I think what it comes down to is it's a lack of accountability at the top. And listen, if you own your own NFL franchise, that's your prerogative, right? You don't answer to anybody in your organization. And so that's the bureaucracy of it all. But I think that when people say, this is something that has bugged me right now. They've been, people have been saying nationally that it's never been this bad with the Giants, right? Under Joe Judge and how it ended now. What are they talking about? It's been this bad for five years. It's only gotten more publicly embarrassing because of his rant in Chicago, the quarterback sneaks, but, and all the eyes are focused on them now. But really what we're looking at here is an organization that is not willing to accept accountability all the way up to the top. And so the need to scapegoat people beneath them causes this vicious cycle of constantly turning over and not seeing a process through it. I want to stop you on, on the quarterback sneaks because, you know, this certainly we have people listening to this podcast that are Giants fans, and then we have people that are just football fans. That was a story that percolated throughout NFL circles. Third and nine at your own four, you run a QB sneak, right? Maybe you're trying to build up some space between the end zone. Maybe I understand it. It's a weird play call. That's, I think, the point that's going missed. It wasn't a QB sneak on third and nine from your, from your own four. It was two QB sneaks back to back, second and 11. You gain two yards. Okay. Weird QB sneak. You can maybe catch them off guard. Basically run the same play on third and nine. I don't know, Pat, right? Like at a certain point, if your players aren't executing the plays, if you throw up a pass play, you know, trying to get 11 or trying to get nine yards on third and nine and the guy drops it or it's a bad pass from prom, that's one thing. But if you're calling a play that, that it has basically no chance of gaining nine yards, right? That's on the, the head coach. Are you, are you hearing anything? that maybe Judge's job was safe up until that game? Because that game certainly put a really bad spotlight on the Giants. My understanding, that Chicago presser was what, the, the turning point. I think the, the pure quarterback sneaks was just pouring gasoline on the fire. The presser was the turning point. But the quarterback sneaks, I'll tell you this, you know, on a negative side for Judge, I mean, there were people not only around the league, as you mentioned, but there were people inside the building who they don't want to be associated with that play call. Let's put it that way. I would think so. There are people in the Giants who do not want their legacy and their Wikipedia page to include being involved in those play calls. That said, I swear this is true. After they did it on second down, I looked at a couple of guys in the press box and I said, run it again. It's your best play. <laughs> and <laughs> I was half kidding. But that was also this is another thing, too. Again, plenty of things negative you can say about Judge's program and how it ended there. But being around this team every day, going with them to Arizona and watching them practice out there as like one of like five people who had this kind of access and all. I was well aware of the internal frustration between Joe Judge, the coaches and everything with the personnel they had on the field on offense and the Chicago game where Judge flew off the handle. It was really because of the eight point swing at the end of the first half where his offense and his team collapsed. They gave up a safety. They looked like a Mickey Mouse club. So he went into that final game determined to not let another situation like that recur. So listen, 
I know it sounds ridiculous to defend that play call. I'm just telling you from, from the outside, I understood what it looked like. From the inside, it still doesn't look great, but I, I swear I understood and actually expected it based on how frustrated they were that Jake Fromm was out there dribbling like golf balls at their fullback's feet when he was wide open. Yeah, Pat, this ultimately circles back to the, to the question, the threshold question that the Giants have to face, as well as a number of the other teams who are looking for head coaches and, and new GMs. How do you go about effectively changing the culture of an organization? Now, the last three hires by the Giants were either previously failed head coaches or totally unproven position coaches or coordinators, McAdoo, Shermer, Judge. You and I, I guess, go back to our days, you know, with the Rangers. You remember when the Rangers hired John Tortorella to change the culture in 2008, 2009. The Knicks did the same thing with Pat Riley in the early 90s. The Giants did this with Tom Coughlin. Rangers with Mike Keenan. The list goes on and on and on. And the point I'm trying to make here is that head coaches with a certain pedigree or immediate culture changers, yet the hiring process that the Giants and other teams are embarking upon, or let's get the GM in first, and then the GM will hire a head coach that will sort of be subordinated to him, that will obviously be respectful of the chain of command. And there are two names sitting out there, that if I own the New York Giants, my first phone calls, my two first phone calls in order, and I know we're going to, you know, that they may not be plausible here, but my first two phone calls would be number one to Nick Saban, and number two to Jim Harbaugh, neither of which are restricted contractually from engaging the Giants in, in, in a conversation. So how do you square the need for culture change versus the sort of the process that the Giants are currently embarking upon where they're going to lose out on a guy like Harbaugh because they've got to hire the GM first and then the GM in turn wants to have his own man in place. So how do well, you go about right. doing this the right way? No, it's a good question. Well, I personally think that the Giants, their culture has soured because their team has been bad or they've been bringing in the wrong types of players or like going back to Shermer and McAdoo, guys were quitting on the field in the secondary. And with Judge, what happened was even though he was running a disciplined program, you know, by the end it was, there were things getting away from them and really the product on the field was so bad that it just undercut anything they were building even positively behind the scenes by the end. But then I think that it's not culture that needs to improve. I think the culture will get better here if their personnel management and evaluation gets better. Because I just think, like, look at the Philadelphia Eagles who were supposed to be in the toilet, who are suddenly back in the playoffs. The reason is because they have either great players at key positions, like left tackle, edge rusher, corner, or they have significant depth when guys get hurt. You know, when they had Carson Wentz, they still drafted Jalen Hurts. He's a serviceable quarterback. The way that teams' cultures improve is when their organization is a functional drafting and free agent signing machine that manages assets properly enough that your foundation, like Joe Judge kept talking about the foundation and there were all these things behind the scenes that we were doing to improve the culture and how we're building. The way you improve a foundation is with asset management. It's by having 13 draft picks in a draft when another team has six. Because, you know, there's this misconception in the NFL. Gabe Gettleman was guilty of this. People who think that they're a better evaluator than the next guy. The people who are the best at this in the NFL understand The way you build a team is by understanding you're going to miss and get more kicks at the can. And actually, I can tell you this flat out. Their trade back in the draft last year to get an extra first-round pick this year was Judge. That was his influence. They have two first-round picks in the top 10 this year because Judge came from the Patriots, which is an organization like the Ravens, like the Colts, like some of these others, that understands the value of draft picks and capital and cost control. And so this is a long-winded answer on culture to tell you that I think the word culture only is used and becomes a problem when you do all of these other foundational things poorly. 
Yeah, but but you know, Judge, in my view, should have been fired if he had any influence in that trade back because the Giants pick was sandwiched around three pro bowlers or future pro bowlers, Devonta Smith, Rashawn Slater, and of course, you know, Mika Parsons. Don't get me started on Mika Parsons. Gettleman arguably has set the franchise back a decade through mismanaging the first round of the draft. Imagine, and Steve Serby had a great column in the New York Post. We all play that game of what if. And what if the Giants could have a mulligan and go back and redraft in 2018 all the way through 2021? You're looking at a potential Super Bowl team, and now the culture changes. So, I mean, I think the trade back from 10 to 20, making it look very good for 2022, was a disastrous trade back, given that they had two pro bowlers staring them in the face with no guarantees of what lies ahead with pick number seven in the first round. I am taking no part in Dan calling Devontae Smith a future Hall of Famer. That's not pro bowler, pro bowler, pro I'm bowler. Gonna, I'm not going to say that. What did we see from Devontae Smith to say there's a future pro bowler? A thousand yards, almost a thousand yards in his rookie season. He's also, a, a, he's also an eagle. He's also an eagle. Why are we supporting the Eagles here, Dan? That's right. Well, I'll tell you to unpack what you just said about that pick in that draft real quick. So if they didn't trade back there. Yeah, so first of all, they were caught with their pants down by the Eagles drafting over, trading over them for Smith. They wanted Devontae Smith. They thought he was going to be there for them. They wanted Jalen Waddle. They wanted Devontae Smith. And they were caught with their pants down by the Eagles. That's number one. Number two is if they didn't trade back, they were going to take Elijah Vera Tucker, the guard who ended up with the Jets. So even if they didn't trade back, that was going to be their pick. So that goes to Judge, Gettleman, Mara. This is the whole Giants operation. And to your point on culture, Dan, Micah Parsons basically wasn't drafted because of quote unquote culture reasons. This is the same Lawrence Taylor in 2021. Would they have drafted LT? Well, this is the whole myth behind the giant way where, you know, we're higher than mighty and, and holier than thou. And we only accept a certain kind of person. Like, please give me a break that Lawrence Taylor was the best player in your franchise's history. Right. And they traded Odell Beckham Jr. and said it was culture related. And now they can't score a damn point on offense while this guy's in the playoffs with the Rams. So don't tell me about culture if you're the Giants. You're getting me going here now. Yeah, where, do, where does it go from here? But play general manager. <laughs> what would you like to see happen? I personally think the only way to change the culture is by bringing in a strong head coach who could command respect in the room day one, kick ass, and have players look at his track record of success. And there's only one name that fits that bill, and it's Jim Harbaugh. Everybody else is an unproven commodity, unless, of course, you can go out and get Nick Saban. But I don't think Nick Saban is going to come here at age 70 with no franchise quarterback in place. He's been through that story before. So it's got to be Harbaugh. Otherwise, you're rolling the dice yet again. I don't think it's going to be Harbaugh because I think this is just from my reporting. I mean, I don't know Jim personally. I believe that people believe that he wants to stay at Michigan. He's just leveraging himself with NFL interests. And then obviously if something big popped, he, he might jump, but there's not a lot of belief at the moment that he's jumping to the NFL or that somebody's taking him. That could change. I mean, I, you know, that could be wrong this early, you know, you're also looking at the giants. Now I believe they want to, and I think they should have an organization structured top down where if you brought in Jim Harbaugh and gave him carte blanche as a coach, and then you have either him being the GM too, or, someone picking the players who's really kind of answering to Jim, you know, that's, you get, you get back into this whole, like who's really in charge. Are they both reporting separately to the owner? There's not alignment. You got the coach wants this draft pick. The GM wants the second round pick. Chris Mara wants the third round pick and you're back where you started. So I, you know, I think I will say this, there's not a lot of Joe Shane is respected from the bills. Adam Peters is respected from the Niners. Uh, Adrian Wilson is a guy who has a lot of respect from the Cardinals. Joe Hortiz from the Ravens. Those are the names that jump out to me in their nine list candidate, their nine man, name candidate list right off the bat. But there's a, two things. One, there's a lot of feedback right now. Even if these guys are promising and revered as rising stars, no one in this group is considered like, oh my God, you have to hire this guy as your GM right now. Like the Giants can't let him leave the building. I haven't gotten feedback on any of them in that vein, number one. Number two, they have competition and some of these other jobs are more attractive. And in that number two point, the Giants have no cap space. And they made a huge mistake by loading up this past year. 
and thinking that they were going to go for it and win. And so they don't need a Jim Harbaugh or a Nick Saban as much as they need somebody to clean up their business. And so, you know, I think before you bring in the coach to fix the culture, you know, so to speak, I think you're bringing in somebody to manage your assets properly and to get your books in order. And I know that sounds boring and it's not football and it's not, let's go win in 2022, but that looks like where the giants are looking. And frankly, based on the way they're set up right now, it looks like where they need to go. I'm all in on Saban. I've been, it's my biennial right of culture to beg for (laughs) Saban to come to the giants. He almost came to the team in 97. You know, he was the first choice and I, I guess young was trying to force some assistance upon him and have control over the coaching staff. And they ended up choosing fossil over Nick Saban. And I've been, I've been chasing Nick Saban. Bill Belichick and and Bill Parcells for the last 25 years. And it doesn't seem like I'm ever going to get one of them back here, but I think this is the last chance for Saban. If he comes here and it's not going to happen, you know that there's going to be a dramatic turnaround. Somebody needs to do that thing where he got asked on the field. I can't remember what he got asked about a couple of years ago. And he goes, no, and, and I'm not going to do it. So quit asking. You know, we need another uh, soundbite like that. from Saban. Am I the only one that remembers that he was not a very good NFL coach? Am I the only one that remembers that? I, I tend to think that Dolphins fans do, do not want to. Au contraire. He was terrific in his first year. Terrific. He chose the wrong quarterback. Hall of Fame NFL coach. Now, the man is staying in college. He's got no reason to leave. Pat, I got one last one and then I, I think we're ready to get you out i know you had a busy day with some conferences coming up i think you know in our nfl world memories are, are very short right last year even though the giants had a horrendous season it was a, that weird nfc east year where truly the giants were one win away from making the playoffs as crazy as that sounds and i remember it very well right the eagles didn't really compete that last game of the season and joe judge came out and said uh, i'm kind of paraphrasing but he said you know the eagles ruined football this is against the spirit of the game to not play their starters are, are we having a very different conversation today if the Giants somehow backdoored their way into the playoffs and Judge was defending his legacy, hey, I, I made the playoffs. How am I being booted? Or, or does that have no bearing on anything? The only thing I want to add, I think you summed it up pretty well. You know, we're moving the goalposts, right? You know, what, what will allow you to be the head coach, you know, this year might change the next year. Is it that fickle of an organization right now that Judge making the playoffs in a, you know, in a backdoor way beyond really his control, that would have changed his legacy? Or is that really, was that not on the table at all? I think you make an incredible point. I completely agree with that. And this is because of how the Giants operate, which is you and I can sit here and understand that they were the same six and 10 team, whether or not they got in or not based on the Eagles tanking. But it is my belief, understanding the Giants and being around them on a daily basis, that they would have judged, judged differently here if he had that playoff appearance on his resume, even though it was only because of that one change that had nothing to do with their team. Right. And I, that's exactly it. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head is it is fickle. These decisions are made emotionally and they are not based in any consistent process. Because we have this expanded playoffs. There's a lot of teams that made the playoffs this year. I know, and obviously last year, you know, Giants last time they played the playoffs was not long ago. I think it was 2016 in McAdoo's uh, wild card 11 and five year. But not good, that long ago. Not the, I mean, listen, well, well, you don't know what I'm about to say. Jets have the longest playoff drought and it's not even close 2010. And there was no team. I think the, I think the closest team is the Broncos who made the playoffs, I think in 2014, 2015. So the jets have more than four years. They've had a longer gap than anybody else. So listen, giants fans, it might be bad now, but at least you're not a jets fan. I'm I'm sorry to (laughs) Jets. I will say this, listen, the the jets are not a well-oiled machine, even now under this new regime by any stretch of the imagination, but there are some people out there who are actually saying the words like even the Jets are better off right That's now. Debatable. Debatable. We'll agree to disagree on that one. It is debatable. It is debatable. Well, I mean, I'd rather have, you know, their quarterback than, than Daniel Jones. I know you wrote a you had an interesting you know, evening out with Daniel a couple of months ago and you wrote a great column about that. But I'm not in the Daniel Jones camp. You know, he's not what I consider to be a franchise quarterback. But I want to get back to sort of the overarching issue that distinguishes the Giants ownership from just about every other team in the league, you know, Woody Johnson, billionaire, and this is a team with billionaire owners, and the Giants seem to be an anachronism with not just family ownership involved, but two sets of owners, 50-50, you know, the Tisch family and the Mara family. To what extent does this characteristic of the team's ownership 
play a role in sort of the output and the sort of the, you know, the, sort of the decline of the franchise? Would they be in better hands if the Maris sold and there was one owner that, you know, just sort of exerted that kind of influence throughout the organization? Are they just basically viewed as a small market ownership group, you know, almost not in the same character of, as a Jerry Jones or a Stan Kroenke? Would they be better off with different ownership? John Mara and the Giants are still revered as the, you know, one of the royal football families of the NFL and landmark franchise, et cetera. The dynamic of having the two owners creates, especially when things go as badly as they have the last five years, creates an amount of friction and behind the scenes debate and delays and firings and decisions and half measures, the kind that you see here. You know, where one person can't just say, I'm sticking with this. You know, you have to clear it with your other half 50-50 partner. And I think that the Giants are viewed as stuck in the past. I don't know if that has as much to do really with having two owners as much as really in the end, I think people believe and understand that the Maras are the Giants going back, you know, to their foundation. And that, for example, coming off of Joe Judge's firing, John Mara is addressing the media. Steve Tisch is not scheduled to do so. So they are behind the scenes, equal partners, but out in front of the cameras, the person standing there and taking blame for the lack of direction of the franchise is Amara, is John, is Wellington's son. Are they better off with new ownership? I think they would be better off with an owner who accepted how broken his ways were and embraced change in that regard. I think that it's never too late for someone like John Mara to do so, but I certainly think it's hard for me to sit here and tell you they wouldn't be better off with that with different thinking than what has gotten them to this point. And I should couch it with this. In no way am I ignoring the success they had going back a decade or so. You know, Dan made an allusion to obviously the problem is that he is no longer working with the Giants because that coincided with really the two Super Bowls there. But, you know, the fact that the Giants are broken now is due to the mismanagement of the owners, the same owners who shepherded the success more than a decade ago. And because that was in the past and this is now, we're now at a point where the question you're asking me about ownership is a valid one. All right. I have my own feelings on, on this. Uh, personally, I'd like to see I'd like to see them sell eventually. I don't think they've been exceptional owners. They've been loyal to a fault. And throughout the organization, you know, key management positions, key football ops positions are filled with relatives, people with six degrees of separation to ownership. And it's like a family business. And as you go down generation by generation, it's less competent than the generation before. And I, you know, yeah. listen, in my, on my wish list of, of my favorite teams to have new owners is certainly Madison Square Garden would be number one, but I believe the New York Giants would be in better hands elsewhere because I don't believe there's any such thing as quote unquote, a Giants way or Patriots way. It all stems from the football people that get hired, uh, a Belichick, a Parcells, a Coughlin, the organization takes its cue from the leadership that those individuals show. And when you have less than stellar people in key management positions and you hire unknowns to be the general manager, head coach, unproven commodities, this is New York. I mean, literally it's New Jersey, but this is New York. It should be one of the most appealing and desirable jobs, not only in the National Football League, but in all of professional sports. Yet the hiring decisions, when you look at the org chart, it's befitting of, of a middle market franchise and not the type of organization that strikes to get a Riley, a Keenan, a Showalter. And until they begin to think big and bring in maybe having new, new ownership, it's not just new thinking, but I think new people making those decisions. To add to that, the reason I think Joe Judge's Chicago rant was such a problem for him it not only shined a bright, the, the national spotlight on just how overwhelmed he had become and how bad it, it also, and I wrote this for the Daily News, and I had to think about this a lot as I was listening to him and as I processed it over the last week. 
the, pro- the reason that was a problem for John Mara and the Giants was Joe Judge sounded like an outsider. He sounded like somebody who got there, used to a better way of doing things in New England, who looked at the way Pat Shermer's players had quit at the end, captains not going to meetings, guys with golf clubs in the locker room and all that. He sounded like someone who had gotten there and said, what the heck did I just take on? And, you know, he had a quote where he said the hardest thing to change in the NFL on in an NFL team is the way people think. And I think what he said there and what I heard when he said that and what I really see now that he's been fired is he was saying they don't know what they're doing here. And I tried to fix it and I couldn't. And so that, you know, that's in a nutshell, what you're saying and what people see on the outside as far as frustrations of how they operate. I think that was a jarring, especially because I think their own head coach was saying it. I mean, I honestly, I could talk to you about these topics or this particular topic for hours. It's been pent up in me for the last, you know, several years. And it's frustrating to me that they had a golden opportunity uh, in 2018 to kind of reboot the franchise and they didn't select the quarterback. They didn't have an extensive interviewing process. They went with someone that they knew who had just been fired from Carolina and the tragic mistakes over those four years are going to afflict the franchise for years mm-hmm. to come and to dig themselves out of that mess. We're looking at a, it's almost like a 10 year mistake. And I'll always look back to the 2018 draft and the, and the hiring of Gettleman as sort of the inflection point of where it all went wrong. Right. The benching of Eli Manning, the scapegoating of McAdoo and Reese, the hiring of Gettleman to keep Eli rolling, all of that snowballed. And the last thing I would add, you know, you mentioned it, but Daniel Jones might be their quarterback this fall, but there's no reason for them to commit to that. They need to change everything or at least look at possibly changing everything at all the most important positions. And if that means a new quarterback, that means a new quarterback. Pat, it was a pleasure having you on. Listen, you're now a return guest, so you're in the the Hall of Conduct Detrimental. Maybe not the Pro Football Writers Hall of Fame yet, but you're in our Hall of Fame. (laughs) I'm honored. I'm honored. No, thank you guys for having me on, as always. And like I said, you do incredible work. Keep it up. Yeah, and, And thanks for always speaking the truth about the way things are, you know, in, in the NFL and in particular with the New York Giants. I mean, that's a rarity these days. And you just basically right, you've been right on the money all along. So it was a pleasure having you on joining us uh, for the second time. And we look forward to having you back again in the not too distant future. So happy new year. And uh, thanks again for joining us, Pat. You got it. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. So that was Pat Leonard, New York Giants beat reporter for the New York Daily News. Pat is on Twitter at P Leonard NYDN. So, you know, kind of a, you know, different turn than we normally do on Conduct Detrimental, but listen, this is a sports podcast. Obviously, as our listeners know, I, I work for the Giants. John Mara is a lawyer. So we, we're going to kind of go to, through these tough decisions. A lot of our listeners, right? You go to law school thinking, hey, I might be a sports agent. I might be the general manager of a team. Maybe, Dan, you and I could hit the lottery and we could buy a team. I don't know even if um, that $325 million Powerball is going to allow us to buy a team at these current rates, but that's a story for another time. But, you know, it's it's the inside of sports from a legal perspective, right? You heard Pat talking about malpractice and decision-making. So yeah, it, it's a great person to have on. So Dan, what were your overall thoughts on Pat before we move over to Novak? I think we're all in agreement that the Giants have a, a systemic you know, issue here of how they view themselves as an organization and the family tree and, and keeping people sort of on the payroll who have like six degrees of separation. Now, for the first time in 40 years, we're about to embark on the first true outsider to kind of run the football operations side since George Young, and it's long overdue. But, you know, this is an issue that a lot of, a lot of franchises struggle with. I mean, there are a lot of failures uh, that are on the unemployment line this week. He's not, the, you know, Joe Judge is not the only coach who lost his job this week. It's one of the most single difficult things in sports to hire the right, you know, general manager coach combo for a National Football League team. It just seems like there's a 20% turnover almost every offseason. Very insightful interview. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, we make the joke, obviously, on, on social media, right? It's the red wedding of NFL coaches every every day after the season it happens. So, you know, for whatever reason, the Giants waited a little bit. We'll see if any other coaches follow. Okay. Before we get to Novak, a quick reminder, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. You know, certainly I think the Giants story deals a little bit with employment law. And this Novak story that we're about to get into deals a little bit with kind of 
international, maybe immigration law. So I don't think immigration law was tested on the bar exam, at least when you and I took it. But who knows, right? 2022, it's like when, it's like every time they say tax law is not going to be on the bar and then it pops up and you're screwed. So for anybody looking for you know advice on the bar, I was told recently that these guys do uh, a lot of resources, free resources for anyone taking the bar, but that's themisbar.com slash condetrimental is our page there. Definitely check it out. Makes us look good and saves you a lot of money. I think it's 200 bucks off. Okay, so moving on to our final topic. I don't want to spend too too long you know, on, this, on this topic, but it's important. Dan, Novak Djokovic, the number one player in tennis. And I think some would say, maybe most would say, the most decorated tennis player of all time. He's tied for first all-time in Grand Slam titles with Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. So three players that are currently active as fate would have it, are the three leaders in the sport, at least in the record books. So of all people, right, Novak Djokovic, who I think, I mean, sports fans, I'm not necessarily a tennis fan, but I, I knew that Novak Djokovic was part of this, we'll call it this anti-vax movement. He's made headlines for kind of the wrong reasons, but, you know, ne- neither here nor there. In order to travel in this day and age, my, my wife and I just did it. We went on a trip to the Virgin Islands with, with my wife's family. You know, what your vax status is and what your negative test status is, that's a requirement for travel. And especially if you have a guy like Novak Djokovic, who, you know, is known to be, you know, in that anti-vax movement, you're going to have to get some type of exemption to get into a country uh, to travel, right? And for tennis purposes, you needed an exemption to get into uh, Australia. So Novak, you know, just a brief history, but I think it's important, applied for a medical exemption. And I believe there's only really four categories that applied here. The one that Novak used was that he, he actually tested positive for COVID in the last six months. So that actually allowed him an exemption from getting the vaccine. So in kind of a weird backwards way, getting COVID was a good thing for him because it, in theory, allowed him a, a window to get into the country. Why Novak is coming under fire here is really, I don't know, it's really one large issue, maybe two. Novak on his travel papers indicated that he did not travel in the 14 days prior to heading to Australia. So anyone that follows, you know, follow this on social media, I obviously I caught up after the fact. I don't know. Social media is the worst, worst case for Novak because it shows him in other countries. So that turned out as the Maury show, right? That line, the lie detector determined that that was a lie. He had been in other countries, even though he said no on this form. So Novak is staring at a case where he's lied on a on a travel form, which in the country of Australia, then I looked at the Home Affairs website. It comes with a maximum jail sentence of 12 months if you lie on a form. And Novak today, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. We can talk a little bit about the court case. But Novak has admitted that the form was inaccurate, that that was not true. And he's saying, I didn't make the mistake. Somebody on my team made it. And my agent's apologizing for this mistake. But Novak's in a weird spot. He's asking kind of, oh, it's a human error. People make mistakes. It's not a big deal. But black letter law, his form was inaccurate. His form was a lie. He lied. Somebody on his team lied on a public form, without which I don't think he would have been approved. So Novak's kind of at the whim of, of tennis. As of today, Dan, we're recording this on, on Wednesday. No decision has been rendered, but the Australian immigration minister maintains the authority in his personal discretion to deport Novak. And we're about days away from the tournament. So this is still up in the air. And, and also, mind you, Novak might go to prison out of all this. I'm not predicting it, but it's certainly on the table. Yeah, yeah Dan, imagine if I made a declaration in federal court, an affidavit in state court, where I swore under penalty of perjury that what I said was true and accurate, which followed, and some of the statements in my affidavit or declaration were false, and I signed the declaration. And when the judge calls me to account on it, I say, you know what? My paralegal filled that out. It's an honest scrivener's error. My paralegal apologizes. How far do you think that would get me in federal court? This is no different, Dan. I'm looking at the certification on the you know, uh, Australian government's federal court website. It says here, have you traveled or will you travel in the 14 days prior to your flight to Australia? Note, giving false or misleading information right. is a serious offense. You may also be liable to, for a civil penalty for giving false or misleading information. The ultimate accountability here is with the affiant, the person who signs the certification and fills out this form. You and I have to do it when I travel. If I if I were to lie on my application or my, my travel declaration before flying to Russia, they wouldn't have let me into this country, into the country of Russia, they, nor would they have let me into the United States. This is a serious offense. And this notion that you can just offload responsibility to this unnamed agent who 
didn't give a declaration himself to say, you know, to, to run through the sequence of, of events. He's unnamed. Who knows what he is? This is almost like hearsay. I don't think this is going to get very far. And this is not just a matter of bending the rules. This is violating Australian federal law and under no set of circumstances, given the severe crisis that's taking place in Australia with the Omicron and 90% of the public is vaccinated, the attitude and the, the, the sentiment within Australia is decidedly against Jokovic. And there's, I cannot envision any set of circumstances where it would be politically viable to cut a favor for a, a prestigious athlete when everyone else in Australia has to follow the rules and every other male tennis player who's playing in this tournament was vaccinated and moreover did not lie on their travel declaration. This is just a horrible set of facts that is not only belied by his own personal statements made almost under oath, but by his travel itinerary and his testing and, and speaking with a group of children after he'd already received a, a positive test result. This is just insane that he's litigating this issue. So why this is not just a vaccine, Dan, you, you and I don't like to cover necessarily, I don't know why this necessarily has to be political, but it kind of is at a certain point. So I guess the brief history, the, the legal proceeding that, that was kind of you know in the middle of all this, Novak comes to the country. And Australian border force essentially said, tried to ask him some questions like, hey, how were you approved for this? And, and Novak, to his credit, and we want to give both sides of this, essentially said, hey, there was this kind of, you know, I don't know the procedure, but I was approved by Tennis Australia. And now, you know, we, we've since researched in hindsight, Tennis Australia, in order to get approved, there was kind of a double blind panel, two different panels had to approve you. They didn't know who you were. I think 26 individuals associated with tennis, it could have been spouses or coaches, 26 individuals applied for this medical exemption. And Novak as a blind application was approved. So Novak came to the airport at four in the morning and just goes, here, here are my papers. And what I guess what had happened was interesting. I'm certainly in the weeds with this because I had to do a Fox business segment. So I, I don't know what directions they're going to take me. You know, I got to be on my toes. But that Novak's passport was not synced up with his exemption. It was like a normal passport. It needed to be an exemption. It had to be a special subclass for his passport. So that was flagged by Border Force, which it should be, right? Like my mom was traveling with us recently and her last name was misspelled on her ticket. So they flagged it. Right? That, that's what they should do. So what happened was they flagged it and then they said, Novak, you have to go into a, a hearing right now. We need to understand how your, your visa was approved, how this happened. And he goes, it's four in the morning, guys. Can we just wait till like 830 so I can speak to Tennis Australia? Like, can I do this? And they go, absolutely not. And then, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but they they coaxed him into a meeting, an interview. And then he didn't have any additional evidence because he couldn't call anybody else. He couldn't call his agent. He couldn't call Tennis Australia. So that decision went to federal court this past Monday uh, in Australia. And the judge sided with Novak and said, listen, I'm not talking about the substance. I have no idea here what's going on with travel and whatnot. All I know is that he was denied his, his procedural due, you know, his due process. So the visa was reinstated. So now he's back in Australia, technically eligible to play. But, you know, in the middle of all this, Scott Morrison, the Australian prime minister, said, Jovac's visa has been canceled. Rules are rules. No one's above the rules. So it's all of a sudden a political issue. And Dan, I'll, I'll leave you this and I'll, I'll give it back to you. You know, like there's now this one guy, I think his name is Alex Hawk, who's the Australian immigration minister. He and he alone has the sole authority and is what they call his personal discretionary powers to basically deport Novak and up to three years he can deport him for. So you have the prime minister who's basically spoken out against Novak. You have Serbian fans of Novak that are in the street kind of getting pepper sprayed by the police because they're getting too rowdy. This is a loaded topic. And I, I don't know if, if this guy Hawk's going to do anything. He could also exercise it in the middle of the tournament. I mean, this is kind of unprecedented what's going on. Dan, it's not that loaded of a topic. It's not political. It's legal. You know, you, this, is, this is much more than just a mistake on a declaration. You have to remember, he tested positive. He took a PCR test on December 16th, got the results back 8.19 p.m. And he certified that in some of his court filings in Australia and was meeting with children the next day, unmasked, hugging a child, not wearing a mask, doing a media interview uh, with a reporter at times during which he was not masked. This was all after he received the results of the PCR test. Now he's now trying to create a little bit of confusion and ambiguity around when he actually received the PCR test results. But, you know, there are rapid tests nowadays. And, and you know, I received my PCR test results within, uh, I think, a matter of hours. When I flew into Moscow, it was a it was a two minute PCR result turnaround. And his turnaround on December 16th was a matter of hours. When you look at all the credibility issues that are abounding here, the erroneous 
declaration on the travel form, the receipt of the test result, followed by public appearances, traveling to two different countries during that 14-day period. They begin to really accumulate a mountain of adverse evidence against him. And given the public health crisis involved and the country that we're talking about where 90% of the population of Melbourne is vaccinated and then statements from two of the most important political officials, I don't think there's much room here for Australian, uh, for Australian government officials to create an exemption or create a, you know, just a waiver of this requirement it's here exception, when, they have, when they have accountability to their citizenry. They right. simply cannot do this. So, yeah, I mean, listen, by the time you guys hear this, I think they I mean the draw for the open is on uh, on Thursday. You'll probably hear this by then. And the tournament starts on the 17th. But just this is a floating issue. They could kick him out of the tournament, in which case, you know, we'll come back on the podcast and discuss it. But they, they might exercise a discretion in the middle of the tournament. It, it's pretty crazy. But, you know, the issue isn't isn't so much, you know, can he play? It's the criminal repercussions. Yeah, it's certainly it's a loaded story. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it. You know, as we're putting this episode in the books, obviously, big shout out to everyone in New York, myself included. Shout out to myself. New York sports betting is now legal and it's a good time. Good time for sports fans and, and New Yorkers. Dan, listen, I, I think there's more to add in this Novak thing. Let's hope the story doesn't go away. Who knows? Maybe it'll be our next St. Louis Ram story. Dan, anything to add before we put this in the books? Well, I, th- I think the New York sports betting story is going to have a sort of a longer time horizon than the Djokovic story, because I think, you know, it's gotten off to a great start. 17 million, you know, geolocated transactions the first weekend. But the story going forward is going to be the tax rate. And whether New York lawmakers will tweak the tax rate to make it a little bit more palatable for these operators to operate profitably because a 51% excise tax rate on operations really creates a very narrow, if non-existent profit margin. So that's the story to look at in 2022 and going forward. Okay, for Dan and myself, Dan, as always, is at Wallach Legal, myself at Sports All Lust, the show at Con Detrimental. And we will see you next time on another episode of Con Detrimental. (laughs) 